0: Take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And we're just going to read verses 20 through 22. Romans chapter 6, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things from which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. Now, again, we come to our study here in uh, the book of Romans. Uh, Paul is uh, continuing to talk about the issue of sanctification. He's continuing to use this metaphor that portrays the Christian life, that of slavery. And as I told you before, every man born in the world is a slave and at conversion, a believer changes his master. We go from one slavery to another. Before we were in Christ, we were slaves to sin. We were held captive by the tyrant sin, but once we come to faith in Christ, once we're born again, we become slaves of God and slaves of righteousness, and there's no in-between time. There's no interval between those two slaveries. There's no neutral territory uh, when we're not a slave to a master. Every person born into this world as a slave of somebody. Now, uh, one commentator has said this. He says, When we are converted, the door of the prison house of sin was opened, our chains were unlocked, and we were ushered out of our former bondage to sin and immediately were brought into a new slavery of righteousness. That's a great picture, right? The doors are uh, broken open, the chains are unlocked, and we've been freed from our bondage to sin, brought immediately into the slavery of righteousness. And that's an important point to understand, uh, because there's an unbiblical teaching that's popular out there called the no lordship salvation issue, or no lordship salvation view. It says in essence that you can be free from your slavery to sin when you come to Christ, but at the same time you not become his slave. Right? Uh, he, he can be your savior, but not your lord. Yeah, you uh, can enjoy the benefits of him being your savior, But you don't have to submit to him. You don't have to obey him. You can live however you want and claim to be a follower of Christ. Did I not say this morning that once you uh, profess, confess, Jesus is Lord, you just gave up your sovereignty? Did I say that this morning? I think I said that this morning. Right? Once you come to faith in Christ, once you acknowledge the fact that he is the Lord, you just end it. Your right to rule your life is over. Right, But the no-lordship view says, no, he can be your Savior, but not your Lord. You can live your life any way you want. You don't have to obey him, uh, again, and you can claim to be a follower of Christ. And then down the road somewhere, we talked about this in the series, so down the road somewhere, I don't know, five years, ten years or so, you can get to a point where you, quote-unquote, dedicate your life to Christ. At some point, you get serious about following him. You submit your life to him. And then you make him Lord, and you become his slave. Uh, we talked about it. It's known as a second work of grace. You enter into, quote, unquote, a higher level of Christianity or commitment to Christ. The only problem with that teaching is it's completely unbiblical. It's a very popular teaching, but it's completely unbiblical. And the portion of scripture that we're going to look at tonight refutes that incorrect view of Christianity. The moment that you come to faith in Christ, the moment you're converted, you're released from one slavery and immediately ushered into a new slavery from being slaves to sin to now being slaves of righteousness, slaves of Christ. Now, as we come to the verses tonight, 20 through 22, uh, Paul is going to repeat himself with some familiar themes that he has been working out with regards to the issue of sanctification or holiness. And he's going to give two major reasons why we as Christians are to be slaves of righteousness. Two major reasons why, as once we come to Christ, we are to live lives of holiness. We are to live sanctified lives. Reasons why we can no longer live in sin. And he's going to show us the characteristic of that life uh, in uh, the Christian life in verse 22. Now, I remember last time we were in verses 18 and 19, I believe. And, and the first thing the apostle did there is he showed us our position in Christ. Look back up there, verse 18. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Again, this is the position of uh, every Christian in the moment of salvation. At the moment of salvation you become freed from sin. At the moment of salvation, we're freed from the power, the dominion, the tyranny of sin, freed by the grace of God from sin. And and freed from sin means that the Christian has now become a slave of righteousness. Freed from sin and a slave of righteousness, having been freed from sin. That means that the Christian uh, has changed his master. The Christian is no longer who he once was. The Christian is no longer a slave to sin, But now, in an instant, he is a slave of righteousness. Now, I said before, this is a fundamental truism of the New Testament, a fundamental New Testament true statement about the Christian. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And that phrase, become slaves of righteousness, really means that you have been enslaved to righteousness because it's in the passive voice, right? You've been brought into enslavement by another person, and that meaning again that passive voice means it's been done to you by someone else and every man again is a slave to someone either you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness there's no middle ground and there's uh, no uh, slave gets to choose master no slave can choose to change his master no ch- uh, uh, slave can choose to deliver himself from his slavery don't, we don't have that kind of uh, ability every man born in the world every man born in the world born in adam is a slave of sin And it's only because of the mercy, the grace, the compassion of God the Father that a man can be transformed, that we can be transformed from one slavery into being another slavery, from a slavery of sin to a slavery of righteousness. And again, it's done by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Christ alone. And it comes to that man who's become obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you're committed, as it says in verse 17. And again, it has been done by someone else to us, enslaved to God by God himself. Now, once a man comes to saving faith, once a man uh, begins to be worked up, uh, uh, upon by the regenerating work of the person of the Holy Spirit, and <clears> he <throat> comes to a true knowledge of the gospel, superabounding grace really takes hold of that person. And by the power again of the Holy Spirit, because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, upon Calvary's cross, that man is transferred. transferred. Transferred from the dominion of darkness and from slavery to sin, transferred now into the kingdom of light into the slavery of righteousness. Again, it's all done by the grace of God. Uh, No man does this. No woman does this by themselves. God is doing this work, right? And it's the position of every believer. Having been, excuse me, verse 18, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness or you became enslaved. Now, remember I told you, this passage, chapter six, is full of indicatives. It's just statements of truth, right? And that's the way you should look at it. In your mind's eye, it should be just... A pile of truth upon truth upon truth upon truth upon truth upon truth. And you keep looking higher and higher. And you just keep looking up to God and Christ. Because that's where your hope comes from. That's where your help comes from. That's the whole purpose. He's not asking you to do anything. He's just telling you truth. This is reality. Truth upon truth upon truth. Precept upon precept. To have you look away from yourself. We've got to stop looking to ourselves. And we've got to start looking to God and looking to Christ. To understand what God and Christ has done for us. Again, I've used the analogy the entire time we've been going through the series, that when Lincoln emancipated the slaves, he set them free. They have the the choice. They had the choice. They could go back to their slave masters, or they, they could walk away free men, freed women. That's the choice. And God has provided that opportunity of freedom for us in Christ. You go, I don't, I don't, but I see a different member, I see a different law working out in the members of my body. I think we referenced this last time, right? I got it. I read Romans 7 also. We'll get to Romans 7, but right now in Romans 6, Romans 7 doesn't matter at the moment until you understand Romans 6. Because you can't understand Romans 7 until you understand Romans 6. Because if you could, he would have wrote 7 before he wrote 6, right? (laughs) I know that's pretty deep theological truth. Think on it for a while, and it'll even be greater theological truth, right? We're in chapter 6. Now, again, we've seen the position of every believer, right? Freed from sin, enslaved to righteousness. Now, next thing Paul says is the practice of every Christian, verse 19. He says, verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms, and he's just really referencing the analogy he's using of slavery. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So the practice of every believer, the practice of every Christian, Paul says, is to live out the reality of who you are in Christ, to live as slaves of righteousness, to present or to go on presenting the members of your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. So the Christian has to, must live out who they are now. Right as one who is obedient to his master, his new master, his new Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the old life is gone. It's done, buried, done away with. The old man has been crucified, and I've said all through the series too, we keep dead bodies buried. We don't dig them up. So the old man was crucified. To be crucified means dead, murdered, right? Put away. We don't dig them up. The old man was crucified with Christ. Look up at uh, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that, here's the reason, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. That should get you a round of applause for the Lord, right? That's a tremendous truth. It's just truth upon truth, precept upon precept. So again, because that is true, because we're now in union with Christ as those born again, The Christian is no longer to present his members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, but he is to now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. That's the present active, ongoing activity of the Christian. It's not sin, but it's the presentation of his members, the entirety of who he is, as slaves to God and slaves to righteousness. That's the Christian. That's who the Christian is. That's who the Christian is in position That's who the Christian is in practice. Slave of righteousness. Again, this is doctrinal truth. Again, it's just doctrinal truth, just reality. It's not some kind of emotionalism. It's not... uh, There's no uh, harps playing in the background. There's no tugging of uh, the heart strings, as it were. There's no just as I am. There's no... uh, It's just the urge to understand reality of who you are in Christ. Just straightforward, unadulterated truth. This is the position of the Christian. This is the... Practice of the Christian. Therefore, after reminding the Christians of the doctrinal truth regarding who they are and how they should live, now he's going to come and give reasons why we must or they must obey these commands to present our members uh, as slaves to righteousness and resulting in sanctification. Right? Why? Why should we do this, Paul? Well, Paul says I'll give you some reasons. Verse twenty. Number one, you need to remember who you were. Remember who you were. Remembrance of who who you were. Right. Verse twenty. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And again, that's who the Romans were. That's who we once were, all of us, before we came to Christ, before we became object of God's mercy and grace, before we had peace with God. We were still living under the law, and we were not living under grace. Right? This, again, is the position of every man who's not a Christian. Every man who is not a Christian is a slave of sin. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, that sin reigned in death. Now, that's the position, again, of every person who's not a Christian, the position of every man or woman who doesn't know Christ as Savior. Now, the tragedy is the unregenerated man doesn't know that. The unsaved man, the natural man, the one who is dead in their trespasses and sins, they don't know anything, one, they don't know anything about themselves. They don't understand who they are. The self-made man, if you will, of the world, the one who uh, says he's doing whatever he wants and trying to get ahead in life because of his superior intellect, the Bible says that's not so. The Bible says that person is deceived. That person thinks by living their life apart from God and Christ, they're serving uh, themselves in their best interest. But in reality, the Bible says that person apart from Christ is a slave to sin or a slave of sin and that sin reigns in death. Right? Reigns. R-E-I-N-G, uh, R-E-I-N-G-N-S. Right? Reigns. Not rains like raining thunderstorms, but reigns rules right sin rules death right sin brings in death everywhere that's the natural man again the natural man the unsaved man thinks he's free but again he's a slave he's a slave of sin and he's a slave of the devil he's actually in bondage right second corinthians chapter 4 says that he can't even hear the natural man can't even hear the gospel of the blessed glory of the person of the lord jesus christ because his master satan refuses to allow him to listen He can't listen because he's under bondage to sin. So again, this is a, a point that we need to remember as a Christian, who we were. Who we were, past tense. We need to call it into our mind. We need to remember it. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what does that mean, you were free in regard to righteousness? Well, it means when you are outside of Christ, when you're outside the life of Christ, when you're alien to Christ you had no connection to the realm of righteousness, right? You were not under the dominion of righteousness. You were not under any power to fulfill righteousness. You were free from any obligation to pursue righteousness. The great theologian Charles Hodges, uh, Charles Hodges says this, righteousness had no power over you for your service was rendered to another master. Again, everybody's born a slave to somebody. You're in Adam, you're a slave to sin right? When you were a slave to sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. Righteousness has no power or had no power over you because you and I were actively rendering our service to someone else, another master. When you were slaves of sin, you were freed from regard to righteousness. So again, no man can serve two masters. We talked about that, that previously, right? And when we all were slaves of sin, we all served our master sin. Therefore, we were all freed from regard to righteousness, when you were slaves of sin, right? When you were, when we were all slaves of sin, we were not governed, controlled, uh, directed by righteousness. We were governed, controlled, directed by another master, again, sin. Dominated by sin, servants of sin, slaves of sin. We we could not serve righteousness. Again, it's a striking condemnation to the natural man, and it's a striking condemnation to all the supposed, quote-unquote, good people we meet. Right, You know these people, the so-called nice people. The nice people in the world that are kind and gentle and uh, are interested in serving the community and making the world a better place for everyone. They're just not concerned with this thing called religion. I mean, they don't really have time for all this Jesus stuff. Now, they're not opposed to it, and they're really not opposed to you being a part of it if that's how you want to waste your time. But just don't expect them to be involved in it. And we all can say, well, yeah, I know those kind of people. I know Mr. So-and-so. That's exactly who he is. He's a very nice guy. He's a very nice man. And Mrs. So-and-so, she's also a very nice woman. They're always helping, always serving. Uh, They don't live in the gutter of life, but they're just not interested in religion. They're just kind of nice people. But the Bible says that observation that we're making of them is not true. That that category of niceness doesn't exist. That category is wrong. Well, how's that? Because the Bible says there's none righteous not even one there's none righteous there are no nice people apart from those who have been regenerated right there are no nice people apart from those who have come into saving relationship with the lord jesus christ there are no nice people apart from him and again that's the testimony of the scripture the non christian the natural man no matter how he or she may present themselves to the world they are still a slave of sin and if they are a slave of sin they are a slave to the devil And if they're a slave of sin and a slave of the devil, they're enemies of God. They are under God's wrath. They are under God's condemnation. They are sons and daughters of rebellion. So we, again, as believers, have to make sure we have our categories biblically correct. Because, again, there are only two kinds of people in the world. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. And everybody in Adam is an active slave to sin. Everybody in Adam are dead in trespasses and sin under the curse of sin and death slaves and again for us who are redeemed we have to remember this is who we once were when we were slaves of sin and again when we were past tense slaves of sin and our old life in adam we were freed in regard to righteousness right we, we were at one time enemies of god enemies of christ and again so too are all the good the moral uh, the ethical people so-called who refuse to bow their knee in time now presently and, and repent of their sin And again how, how do you know that's true because i read the bible the bible says that only two categories of people either in christ and if you're in christ you're a new creation in christ you're forgiven in christ your sins are for, moved away from you as far as the east is from the west and now you're a slave of righteousness and again in adam Everybody who's still in Adam, apart from Christ, are slave of the devil. They worship and serve the devil. And again, this is what the Bible says. And again, all this is, is just truth. Pile upon pile of truth, doctrinal truth, revealed truth, God's truth. This is what God says. This is what the Bible says. Right? Again, either a man is in one of two categories. either a slave of sin or is a slave of righteousness. There is no middle ground. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this. He says, any man, no matter how nice he appears, no matter how well mannered, if a man rejects Christ Jesus and him crucified and does not believe in the atonement and its absolute necessity, he must be severely denounced for he has no relationship at all to righteousness, no relationship to God and Christ. All the people in the world who do not see their need for Jesus Christ are in a terrible position, a terrible position. And righteousness is not the guiding principle of their life. But sin is, the devil is. Again, there's none good, there's none righteous, not not even one. The people who don't see the necessity of the person of Jesus Christ and don't believe in the atonement and its absolute necessity need to be warned, they're in a terrible spot. That's the man who rejects Christ. The woman who rejects Christ. The people that are trying to, get, to live, quote-unquote, good moral lives. Uh, the, the man who's attempting, or the woman who's attempting to live up to their own rights, righteous standard. You know people like this. As I'm speaking tonight, I'm thinking about a fellow I met a couple years ago. I can't even remember his name, but he's one of the nicest guys I ever met in my life. And I just started sharing the gospel with him. And he went from this nice, calm demeanor of a man to getting angry with me in a very nice, calm voice. He said if I was younger, I'd, well, he didn't say I'd whip your butt, but he, but I mean, he, he said I'd, I'd beat you up, Right i'm just a nice guy but didn't like the truth didn't i say that this morning it's the words of jesus christ it's the words of truth that the unregenerate man can't stand it's the words of jesus christ that fills our hearts with such joy people come up after the sermon and they go i i I just you encourage me because you shared the gospel And every time we hear the gospel, it encourages our heart. Every time we hear the gospel, we realize who we were and who we are now and the kindness of God in our life to transform our thinking, right? So again, the man who rejects Christ is going to live on his own uh, moral standards. He's attempting to live up to his own righteous standards. And listen to this. Speaking of Israel, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, uh, chapter 10, he says this. Romans 10, 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for Israel, is for their salvation. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Verse 3, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That's the so-called good and moral man. They don't know about God's righteousness. They're trying to seek to establish their own righteousness, but they refuse to subject or submit themselves to the righteousness of God. They are not interested in God's righteousness, right? They're only interested in their standard, their own standard of righteousness. They're going to establish their own standard. And again, I said it this morning, they're hoping to work their way into heaven. They're hoping to be good enough. They're hoping when the day of judgment comes that God will tally it up and there'll be more on the good side than there is on the bad side. But again, God doesn't keep those kind of categorical uh, um, statistics. People are wasting their time. And the Bible says man's own righteousness is absolutely worthless. Isaiah 64, 6. It says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. And it's not my intent to be unnecessarily coarse or offensive, but the... Hebrew word for filthy garment or filthy rags has something to do with this something that is so vile so foul uh, so disgusting even though it's uh, in my notes I'm not going to say it just because there's a number of young kids in the room that's the so-called righteousness of the non-christian the one who's a slave to sin his righteousness her righteousness apart from Christ is vile foul wicked unclean disgusting utterly offensive contemptible before God and that's what the unbeliever is bringing before God and laying before him and saying look how good I am. And it is absolutely unbelievably vile the righteousness that we have apart from Christ. Right? The the non-Christian the one who does not hunger and thirst for righteousness again only proves they are self-satisfied. They're living by their own moral code, their own moral standard. They're outside the realm of grace. They're under the curse of law uh, of the law. Again, they're deceived, slaves to sin, living uh, a, a life of abomination before a holy God. That's why the Christian must obey the command to now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification, because of the doctrinal truth of who we were, who we used to be, remembering who we were. Right? Verse twenty again: When you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. Now the second reason Paul gives here for the Christian that must now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification is because of the character of our former life, Right, the character of our former life. Verse 20 again, you were slaves of sin, you when you were <coughs> slaves of sin, excuse me, you were freed from regard to, or you were free in regard to righteousness. Verse 21 says, therefore what benefit were you then deriving from the things from which you are now shamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Is death. What benefit? Carpos uh, is actually the word. What fruit? Uh, the uh, New King James actually uses that word. What fruit did you have in the things of which you are now shamed in your former life? Uh, the NIV says, "What benefit did you reap uh, of that time from the things that you are now ashamed of?" Show me the benefit. Show me the fruit of your labor when you were apart from Christ, when you were a slave of sin and you were free from uh, righteousness. Right? What kind of life were you living? Well, Paul tells us the kind of life that the non-Christian leads, that all non-Christians lead, there are three characteristics that mark out the non-Christian's life. One, it's a life of fruitlessness. It's a life of fruitlessness. It's a life of no benefit. Secondly, he says it's a life of shame. And then thirdly, it's a life that results in death. A life of fruitlessness or no benefit. A life of shame. And thirdly, it's a life that results in death. Again, verse 21. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed for the outcome of those things is death? What benefit? Again, what fruit? Before you came to Christ? Now the answer is none. Right? What benefit were you deriving before you came to Christ? The answer is none. Nothing, no benefit, no fruit. Because the conduct of a natural man apart from Christ leads him to a life that produces nothing but shame and then eventually ends in death. One commentator of the past has said this, he says, The natural man, destitute of the knowledge of God, of himself and of sin, dreams that by his own strength and efforts he can produce a form of virtue which can stand before the bar of God. He does not know that of necessity, and by lot of his nature, he can only produce evil fruit, just as a wild tree can only produce bitter fruit. Even should he succeed in calling into existence... All the good he has in the most perfect form, it is so destitute of love, so corrupted by conceit, that it merits condemnation as fully as though it was a life of open immorality. Right? So the guy who's trying to do his best to produce all the goodness he can, thinking again that he can stand before the judgment bar of God, this old commentator, a guy named Olenhausen. It says that it's really like you're just living a life of open immorality because it's nothing but more, as the book of Isaiah says, filthy rags before a holy God. It's not going to help you one bit. What fruit, what advantage did you have from your former way of life when you were a slave of sin? And again, the answer to the question is none. Because the natural man, again, void of the knowledge of God, produces only that which is corruptible, right? Only that which is vile, only that which is foul, only that which is worthy of condemnation. Only that that produces shame and, again, eventually leads to death. Now, I'm going to tell you something that might be a little bit shocking to you. The life of the unregenerate man is fruitless. It's unprofitable. But the life of the unregenerate man does not necessarily mean that it's a life that is devoid of pleasure. Does that sound like a strange comment to make for a pastor? The life of sin can't indeed be a life of some kind of pleasure and happiness. Sounds strange that anybody, especially me, would make that kind of a statement, but nevertheless, it's a true statement. And I think for us to avoid the reality of that true statement, in in order to try to sound more pious or more religious, right, more holy, is a ridiculous position to take. Because it fails to look at life properly and to understand the nature of sin. Because Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25 Talks of men, listen, enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. People would not indulge in sin if there was not a certain measure of enjoyment in it for them. all I got to do is turn the TV on, right? Everybody's enjoying themselves. Everybody in the world is involved in some kind of sin, right? Everybody's drinking, everybody's happy, everybody's having a good time, everybody's driving the right car, everybody's wearing the right clothes, everybody's eating the right kind of food. They're pursuing the pleasures of this world. And they would say, in essence, pity the man who doesn't do the same things we do. Look how much they're missing out. What a wonderful life we're having. We're partying all night long. There's no moral barriers. There's no life to the fullest. Uh, we're grabbing everything we can get in life. Pity the man who's bound in that religious nonsense that you have partaken every single Sunday. What foolishness, right? We're having a wonderful time. Uh, we're free from all those moral codes. We're doing whatever is right in our own eyes. That's the world. That's the world enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. But what the men of the world, the women of the world, the men who are under the influence of the world, the flesh and the devil, do not realize is exactly what the text says. It's the passing pleasures of sin. Because sin is passing, the pleasures of sin are passing. One day the pleasures of sin is going to end either when their own physical body is ruined and destroyed by a wanton life of immorality, perhaps destroyed by sexual disease, perhaps destroyed by alcohol or ruined by drugs, or the passing pleasure of sin is going to come to an end when a man or a woman stands face to face with the Holy God and gives an account for their wretched life and for their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the question by Paul is, What advantage did you have from your former life when you were a slave of sin? The answer from our perspective is nothing as we look back and see. The problem with the non-Christian, the natural man, is they can't think. They don't think. They've lost their reason. They've lost their ability to understand the consequences for their life of rebellion. And they live their life without shame. They live their life without shame. Again, just look at the perversion around us in the world, the wanton immorality. Look at the decline of the culture. The culture becomes more and more perverse. The culture grows in, in, in wickedness and evil. And what does society do? They love it. They love it. The more perverse, the better. And we go, I can't believe what I just saw, which I can't believe what I just saw previous to that and previous to that and previous to that. But now it sure just keeps coming, rapid succession, right? And the world loves it. It loves it. The more perverse, the better. The more overtly, openly shocking a person can be in, in regards to uh, uh, with regards to virtue, the more shocking they can be. The more perverse, the more foul. Uh, the characteristic of the modern life. Again, the world stands up and applauds that kind of a person. Now, again, for the most part, the world has thought, lost its ability to think. The world has lost its a sense of shame. It no longer, again, I've mentioned this to you before, but it no longer knows how to blush. If you are to go back and read the book of Jeremiah and God condemning uh, Israel, uh, that very same thing, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 12. My people don't blush. Again, when is the last time you've seen anybody blush? I mean, honestly can't remember. Because everything that was once quiet and not spoken of is now shouted from the housetops and things we never even imagined are promoted on TV as normal, accepted, and if you don't get in line, pity you for being a fool for not being so up-to-date and it's cool as the rest of us, right? The problem with modern society is it can't think, it's lost its sense of shame, and society, apart from God, therefore, has lost its sense of uh, morality, right? It's lost its moral sensibility. It does not understand the difference between good and evil. It's exactly what Isaiah said. Isaiah 5 and 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Those who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That is the world in which we live. Right? That's our godless society that calls evil good and good evil. Put a mark there in your Bible. We'll come right back to it. You're just going to flip back a couple pages or you can sit and listen. Your choice. But it's a familiar portion of scripture. But I just could not uh, pass it up. Go back to Romans chapter 1. And again, here, here's where we're living. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And again, I've told you before, this is really the, right here, it's the wrath of God's abandonment. It's just God giving men over to sin. If you want sin, I'll give it to you. You just have it in full. And that's what we're seeing. Because that which is known about God, verse 19, is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. All men know that God exists. There are no atheists. Don't play that game with people. It's just a ridiculous argument. All men know that there's a God. How do I know that? Because I read the Bible. For since the creation of the world his invincible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks, but they came futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened professing to be wise they became fools exchanged the glory of the incorruptible god for the image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and 4 four uh, four-footed animals and crawling creatures here it is the wrath of abandonment verse 24 therefore god gave them over to the lust of their hearts and purity that their bodies might be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of god for a lie worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen verse 26 for this reason god gave them over Right? To degrading passions, that their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also, men abandoned the natural function of the women, uh, uh, function of the women and burned to the desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Verse 28, just as they did not see the fit to acknowledge God anymore, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things, uh, which are not proper. Uh, I mean, we, we gotta stop beating our heads against a go, against a wall going, why do we keep making decisions like this? That's the answer to your question. Just read it, go to bed, and stop worrying about it. Right? They cannot make logical decisions. God will not allow them because in his wrath of abandonment, God has given them over to depraved minds, minds that no longer work. That's just simply it. Minds that no longer work, that no longer properly function. To do those things that are not proper. Verse 29, you're being filled with all unrighteousness. What was your life like apart from Christ? Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. I mean, if, there, if you can't find a category that you like in there, then you just invent evil. Right? Even more evil. Disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God and that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's the world we live in. The insanity of man in sin. No shame, perverted, lawless, ungodly. Knowing that they are going to face the judgment of God... But in the insanity of sin, they encourage others to follow them in their rebellion and follow them in their coming judgment because the Holy God will justify himself. The Holy God will judge their sin. And that's where we live. Everybody's saying, come do it with me. Right? And if you don't do it, then we're going to persecute you for not doing our wickedness. Now go back to Romans chapter 6. That's the world in which we live. That's the world that we have been delivered from, our past. Romans 6.21 again asks, Therefore, what benefit were you deriving? Right? What fruit had you then from those things which you are now shamed for the outcome of those things is death. Right? What are the characteristics of the life of the non-Christian? Fruitless life, a life of shame, a life that results in death. Whatever pleasures the non-Christian has found in its sin, it's always going to result in death. That's the natural end of sin. That's the natural end of all those in sin, death, physical death. Yes, that's true. But also eternal death, everlasting death, everlasting conscious torment, everlasting conscious separation and punishment in tormenting fire that is never quenched. A place the Bible calls a lake of fire a place that has been prepared for the devil and his angels, a place therefore men should not be, because God in his mercy and grace has provided a way of men to escape that everlasting judgment. So again, the choices are everlasting judgment or eternal life. Men need to make that decision. And again, I remind you that unlike some who teach falsely the idea that death means annihilationism, that when you die you simply go out of existence, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that once a soul is born, it lives forever again, either in the presence of God in Christ or cast out from the presence of God in Christ in this place of eternal conscious punishment. Once once we're born, we live forever, either in eternal punishment or in eternal life, in a place that is known as hell, a place where Christ says, unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And I think I told you before, some of the old theologians used to say, what is the worm? They say, well, that's the gnawing of the conscience, the gnawing of the conscience that forever and ever and ever in eternity you had heard the gospel, you'd have the opportunity to repent, and you chose not to repent of your sin. Okay? You're sounding very Arminian tonight, I know. I'll get the Calvinistic stuff in at some point. I saw my wife on the way in the great thing about Calvinism, biblical Calvinism, everybody gets what they want. You want eternal life? Come get it. It's full and free. You want condemnation? I have no idea why you would choose that for yourself, but it's there for you because God is a holy God and He will judge sinners. Right? Nobody can come unless the Father draws him. But everybody is commanded to repent and come to Christ. There's those two parallel lines, right? You guys work it out. I'm I'm happy with where I'm at on the issue, and uh, because I think it's a biblically balanced view on the issue. The worm is never going to die. Your conscience is going to accuse you forever. You had the opportunity to repent, but now you can't. It's too late. So what's the motivation for holy living? right? Well, you have to remember who you were. right? The motivation for now presenting your members as slaves to righteousness that results in sanctification. You remember who you were when you were slaves of sin, when you were freed from regard to righteousness. You remember the character of your old life, verse 21. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things in which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Again, the, the, the old life the, was, was just a fruitless life, a shameful life. Uh, again, death marks your old manner of life. So again, we need to think on these things, not morbidly, but we need to remember them. We need to call them to our mind. Remember who we used to be apart from Christ and remember the character of our former way of living. And again, if we're honest, we look back on our old way of life and go, I don't want to think about it too much because I'm ashamed of who I used to be. Ashamed of the things I've done. Ashamed of the things I've thought. Ashamed of the uh, of the things that I've said. Ashamed of the, my fact, of the fact that I've not... I did not in my past life honor Christ in everything, right? So the the apostle Paul sets forth this method uh, of uh, encouraging practical living, a sanctified life, a holy life, of putting to death the flesh, mortifying the flesh. He says, first, you remember who you were. You remember what your life was like. You set before yourself the truth of who you used to be, how you used to live, and then you start asking yourself, again, those series of questions that are in chapter 6. What shall we say? Verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Again, may it never be. Verse 21. Therefore, what benefit? What advantage were you deriving from your old way of life when you were a slave of sin? What fruit had you in those days that you are now ashamed of for the outcome of those things is death? So again, all of the answers are we we can't. We can't live like that, right? How possibly could we continue to live lives of sin once we come to Christ? How possibly could we live lives uh, that continue to be marked by sin and see that as any advantage, right? Because our old life was profitless, fruitless, valueless. It led to only shame and, and death, both physical and eternal. Why would we ever want to go back to that life that we have been set free from? That we have been given new life to escape from. And, and again, the, the question is: are we going to believe those people who teach you come to you can come to Christ as Savior, but reject Him as Lord until you yourself are ready to walk in obedience to Him? Are we going to li- listen to that kind of teaching? Are we going to listen to the kind of teaching that separates justification and sanctification? Again, the question is: how who we to die to sin? still live a life of foulness and perversion and ugliness and wickedness and shame and death, once you come come from being a slave to sin to a slave of righteousness, how can you live that kind of life? Again, the overwhelming answer is you can't. We just can't, right? So should a life of sin appeal to a believer? And the answer overwhelming is God forbid, right? May it never be. Now verse 22. You remember who you used to be, you remember who you are now, right? Verse 22 gives the truth about who all those who claim the name of Christ. Verse 22, now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, the outcome of eternal life. So again, the, Paul gives the reasons why Christians have to live a life of holiness. Why Christians must present their members as slaves to righteousness. First reason, because a Christian has been freed from sin. So again, the, the the Christian or Paul's repeating himself for our benefit. Right? Again, I think the true Christian loves to hear doctrinal truth over and over again. Right? They need to hear, they love to hear the glory and the majesty of grace that is working itself out in a person's life. We've been freed from sin. And again, being freed from sin is something the Apostle Paul has said many times. Go back up into chapter six, verse five. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his res- in his death. Certainly we shall be like him in the the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Again, we're no longer who we used to be. The old us is gone. He who died is freed from sin. Verse 8, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Excuse me, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For verse 14, sin shall not be master over you. You are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace may never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient that, from the heart to that form of teaching to which you're now committed, and you've been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Right? I mean, pity the man uh, who calls mm-hmm. himself a Christian... And, and fails to hear doctrinal truth over and over, or fails to want to hear doctrinal truth over and over again. I mean, Romans chapter 6 is a phenomenal portion of Scripture. Here's what it means, right, to consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to, cry, to, to God in Christ Jesus. It means the person who's now in Christ has undergone a tremendous change. Again, verse 20, you were slaves, verse 22, but now, having been freed... Right? You were then a slave, but now having been freed. That's the definition of a Christian. If you wanted to define a Christian, that's a good way to define a Christian. You were but now. Right? You were but now. A Christian has gone undergone a great glorious transformation. The Christian is the one who can see can can actually speak of but now. There's a difference in his ni- in his life now because of Christ. He or she or I used to be a slave of sin, but now I'm a slave of righteousness. Again, there's nothing in common whatsoever between the Christian and the non-Christian. You were, but now. It's a statement of complete contrast. Again, the Bible knows no such thing as a nice person apart from Christ. There's no middle ground between the believer and the rejecter of Christ. A man either praises, worships, adores, serves the living Lord God in Christ, or he praises, worships, And serves himself and the devil. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. You're either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. You're either a servant of the devil or a servant of the Most High God. And the Christian, again, has been freed from sin at the moment of salvation, at the moment of justification. And the Christian is positionally sanctified, definitely set apart unto God, set free from the bondage and the rule of sin no longer it's slave, now come under a different realm, a different rule, a different authority, that being God in and Christ and, and being set free from sin, now it's slave to righteousness. Now again, I got Romans 7, right? I, I got the flesh is going to come up. The flesh is going to be a nuisance for us until we take our last breath and step into glory, right? But a Christian's life is no longer dominated by sin, right? Uh, he... he, he uh, Uh, a Christian is able to reject uh, sin and to actually obey God for the first time. We are actually able to resist the devil and flee. I didn't say perfectly, but we're actually able for the first time in Christ to obey. I I, I don't need a show of hands, but have you ever said no to yourself? Have you ever said no to a sinful passion? Saying, I'm not going to do that? Why? Why? Because that's the work of the Holy Spirit within you. Before you came to Christ, all you did was sin. You never thought about it. Now all of a sudden you come to faith in Christ and you say, I'm not doing that anymore. There's a battle with the flesh. You can read it out of Romans 7. You can read it out of Galatians 5. right? There's this battle going on. That's the tension. We all battle in that world. But for the first time in Christ, you can say, No, I'm not going to do that. Right? I'm going to take the freedom that God has given from for me or to me and I'm going to flee from the temptation of the devil and I'm going to flee to righteousness right so the christian understands that the christian number 2 realizes that his ability uh, to speak of this blessed but now but it's not because of his own doing again uh, he, it's not of his own right to say but now that's not of our own doing we've been enslaved by god right freed from sin and enslaved to god no longer sin our master we have a new master uh, our master now god the father deals with us in mercy and grace and it got, it's God himself who's working through us, to, in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. Having been freed from sin, uh, the verb having been freed is in the passive. Again, it's a passive participle verb. Again, I just said it earlier, but in, in the, the active voice, that means that you're doing something. You're the one doing the action. But in the passive, it's somebody else doing the action upon you. So in our passive, uh, we were passive in our liberation, being set free. Uh, someone else was active and that's the lord jesus christ it's god the father himself right in the lord jesus christ said in john chapter 8 if if the son makes you free you shall be free indeed right it's the work of god someone has said this he says the spiritual freedom that was designed by god the father working through jesus christ played by the holy spirit it was the mighty work of jesus christ that by the mighty works of jesus christ that your chains were unlocked and you were delivered from your former slavery I mean, God, through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, has set us free. Having been freed from sin, you became enslaved to God. Again, this is the truth about you if you claim the name of Christ here this evening. The Christian has been enslaved to God, purchased by the blood of God himself, as it says in the book of Acts, no longer serving himself, no longer even belonging to himself. The Christian belongs to somebody else. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Listen, and you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The moment you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you just gave up your sovereignty, and you just enslaved yourself to someone else. Everybody in the world is a slave, either a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. The slave of sin is a cruel taskmaster right he mean is the slave of the devil he's a, tr- a cruel uh, taskmaster to enslave yourself to God is a good deal because our father in heaven is love loves us and is compassionate towards us it's gracious is merciful right if you're going to serve somebody don't serve yourself serve the king of kings right and, and again the the christian has been freed from sin and enslaved to god again this is something that <laughs> has been to, done to us wasn't our own effort that changed us it was just god's kindness again the second person of the trinity the holy spirit uh, or the second person of the of the trinity the blessed lord jesus christ left heaven came to earth uh, to this perverse world so he could die a substitutionary death he propitiates god's wrath on our part right and it's the person of the holy spirit the third person of the trinity comes and, and works in our hearts and draws us to christ who changes our life who, who uh, uh, redeems us through the work of the person of christ Again, we were then, but we are now. That's that great exchange that has happened. We've been freed from sin and enslaved to God, and we've derived our benefit. The the benefit is sanctification. So the third truth about the Christian, he now lives a life that bears fruit. He now lives a life that bears fruit. Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you've derived your benefit, resulting in sanctification. Or in the King James, it says you have your fruit, and then it says unto holiness. So again, what benefit did you have when you were a slave to sin? The answer is nothing. Right? What benefit? What fruit? Nothing. Bad fruit. Right? What fruit do you have now in Christ, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God? It's holiness, a transformed life, a sanctified life. Again, there's a profound change in the Christian from who he or she used to be outside of Christ, and there's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't produce fruit. Now we may have to get a little little uh, uh, microscope and look for that fruit. But there's got to be some fruit somewhere. Because now we're united with the person of Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as a Christian that does not manifest some level of holiness, a separation from sin, and a, and a separation unto God, and a life, a sanctified life, a separated life. Having been freed from sin, enslaved to God, you've derived your benefit, resulting in sanctification. What I said is just doctrinal truth separated from sin, perfectly no, but positionally yes, in a process of being more and more each and every day separated from sin unto God. You've been made from, made free from sin, became servants of God, and you have your fruit unto holiness. Again, the authorized version. It's utterly impossible for a Christian to lack holiness. And if I said that too fast, I'll say it again. It's utterly impossible for a Christian to lack holiness. If you, came, if you claim the name of Christ and your life is no different than the unregenerate man, then you need to examine yourself to see if Christ is indeed in you. Because the genuine Christian has to, must, will manifest a life different than the non-Christian because of our union with Christ. The man who claims to be a Christian, yet remains in habitual sin, living a habitual pattern of sin, like the world, is not a Christian, no matter what they say with their life, with, with their lips. If you claim to come to faith in Christ, if you claim that you're united with Christ and you remain in sin, you're not a Christian. It's not just our words, but it's our life that gives testimony to the reality of who we are. Because the doctrinal truth that I've been pounding for the last hour is the Christian has been freed from sin and enslaved to God. That results in a manifestation of holiness. So, again, it doesn't matter how many times you've dedicated your already rededicated life. It, it doesn't matter how many decisions you've made for Christ. It doesn't matter how many times you've said, Lord, Lord. If your life lacks holiness, listen, if your life lacks Christ likeness, then you are not who you claim to be. You're a fraud, you're a phony. You've been deceived, and your soul is in eternal danger, because the Bible says, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting from sanctification. You know, I don't like you. You're always so hard. You're so always so dramatic, uh, dogmatic, and you say stuff like that, right, that your soul is still in eternal danger, Okay. Your soul still is in eternal danger. And the only reason I say that because it's truthful, and the only reason I say it is because I care for your eternal soul. I do not want you to be deceived by liars who will say to you that it's okay for you to accept Jesus as your Savior and not accept him as your Lord, and you just go on living a life because you said a prayer on 19 so-and-so or whatever, or you put a stake out in your front yard. You Baptists know what I'm talking about, right? You go out there, you can't remember, so you just go out tomorrow or you go out to the ceiling when you get home, you put a stake in your front yard, and you say, this is the day I came to faith in Christ, and nobody's going to tell me any different, and I don't care if I live like the the world, but I know because I accepted Jesus. Well, good for you. That's not what the Bible says, is salvific belief. That kind of teaching is everywhere. Christ, Je- Jesus Christ saves his people from their sins. I said that to somebody one time, and it almost cost me my job. When I said, Jesus Christ is Lord, and he actually saves us from our sin, I got into this big theological debate with, with somebody who is in a ho- higher position of power and authority over my job, and, and my job was threatened. I told him my salvation experience. I accepted Jesus, quote-unquote, at a certain, point in time, a certain point in time, and when I came to a knowledge of the truth, that really that I needed to obey him, and I needed to get baptized, not because baptism saves us, but because baptism is a mark of obedience. It's like, you don't believe in lordship salvation. And I said, well, you know, I actually read in the Bible, it says Jesus is Lord. What else am I going to believe in? You have a different, a different Bible, a different Jesus, because we don't make him Lord, he is Lord. We need to come to a knowledge of the truth. We need to stop playing games. People who are on eternal death door, as it were, people who are facing condemnation need to hear the truth. They need to be brought out of the slumber of being religious and come to a knowledge of the truth on a biblical level. Jesus Christ, I showed you this morning, he says, here's the reality, folks, you don't believe in me was he being harsh no he was being truthful he's being loving speaking the truth in love because he wants people to come to acknowledge the truth and not be deceived because i didn't write it but i have read matthew 7 that many are going to say to me at the end of that day lord lord did we not and here's a list of long things that we have done and he's going to say depart from me i never knew you there's a whole lot of people and guess what that's not pagans That's not the worldly people. No, that's religious people. That's the people who thought they had a relationship with Christ, but they were deceived. At some level, they were deceived. At some level, they deceived themselves because they did not read the truth. Did I tell you that people are upset over the words of Jesus? That a lot of people don't like the words of Jesus, so they just make a Jesus that they like. Insert whatever whatever words they want in his mouth and make a, kind of like fashioning that golden calf, right? You want a God? We'll make you a God. You want a Jesus that you can mold like a, a Gumby uh, action figure? We'll make you one, and you can be happy. You might not be holy, you might not be uh, uh, headed to eternal life, but you can be happily deceived in time. I'm not that kind of preacher. I you know, almost most due respect, I don't care if I come back next Sunday. Because I'm dealing with you now this week, I want you to hear the truth. I want the people online to listen to the truth, hear the truth. Be transformed by the truth. Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification. There has to be some holiness in your life. The fourth truth about the Christian, the outcome of their life is eternal life. Right? Being freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, the outcome eternal life. That's the complete opposite of who we once were apart from Christ. Closer and closer, every day, we are getting closer and closer to Christ, closer and closer to his righteousness, closer and closer uh, being conformed to his image and moving further and further away from the sin, right? Every day, right, we are being transformed to the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord to uh, the Spirit, as it says in Second Corinthians 3.18, right? We all with unveiled faces beholding in the mirror the glory of the Lord. Every day, the Christian emancipated from the slavery of sin, enslaved to God, is producing some kind of holiness in their life, some kind of Christ-likeness, because they're now united with Christ. They are in Christ. And the outcome of that union with Christ is eternal life. That's not the reward of merit. Eternal life is not a reward of merit. Eternal life is a gift. Right? It's a gift of God's grace. The Christian, the outcome of his union with Christ is eternal life in the presence of God in Christ. Just as the outcome of the natural man apart from Christ is death, the outcome of the man who's united with Christ is the prince of life is eternal life. So again, the question is, where are you? Where are you with Christ? Where are you with this truth? Where are you in the spectrum of you were then, but you are now? Again, has there been a dramatic change in your life? Because there's no greater change that could ever happen in a person's life than to be born again, to be born from above, to be converted to the person of, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, to, to have an eternal life, to be enslaved to God, to have a new master, given a new heart, a redirected life, a redirected purpose, a new destiny. There's no greater change that could ever happen to be born than to be born again. Right? J C Ryle, who I love to quote, says this to be born again is to enter into a new existence, is to have a new mind, a new heart, a new views. Uh, new principles, new tastes, new affections, new likes, new dislikes, new fears, new joys, new sorrows, new love to the things that you once hated, a new hatred of those things that you once loved, new thoughts of God, new thoughts of yourself, new thoughts of the world, new thoughts of the world to come, and a new life in Christ. Again, there can't be any more dramatic change than conversion. You used to be a slave of sin, but now you're a slave of Christ, and that happens immediately upon conversion immediately upon repentance from sin and faith in Christ. That's the truth. That's what God has accomplished for us in Christ. That's the truth about who you and I are if we're born again. And it's incumbent upon us to recognize that reality and to live according to that change. When we get to to that great exchange that God has provided for us, that great change of life. Um, That's why when Paul gets to the practical portion of the scripture if this is not practical but when he starts laying out uh, imperatives you've got to do this that's why romans chapter 12 verse 1 says therefore right i urge you therefore brethren by the mercies of god present your bodies to god as a holy living sacrifice acceptable to god with your spiritual service of worship right he goes through uh, 11 chapters of great doctrinal truth again just piling it up piling it up piling it up you know our great uh, debt of sin and how god has uh, justified us in christ and the results of that reality, then he says, Look, there's no other no other results is you you gotta present yourself to God. All of you. Right? We talked about this before, your life to God. Present your eyes to God, you present your ears to God, your mind to God, your feet to God, your tongue to God, you present your hands to God. From the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, you're no longer your own. You're now a slave of God. Every member of your body must be continually presented to God. Every aspect of your life must be presented to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your life is no longer your own your life is no longer in your hands but you give it over to god in total complete right you don't crawl off the altar you present your life as a living sacrifice to the one who changed you and it's a good it's a good offering right it's a good deal to belong to the father of all mercies the god of great grace comfort and eternal love so much so that he sent his son the lord jesus christ into the world to redeem us amen what wonderful truth. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for this truth. We're thankful for the reality of the fact that we were slaves of sin, but you freed us. Right? We have been freed by your grace, by your mercy, freed from sin, and now enslaved to you. A gracious Master and Father in heaven. And that results in our sanctification, our obedience to you, and our life of increasing Christ-likeness. And we're just so thankful for these wonderful truths. Thank you for a wonderful day, uh, Fellowship. Thank you for the wonderful day of in your word. May you use your word to transform continually us and change us more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. And we're thankful for the opportunity we have to... Uh, not only feed upon your word, but now to feed on the food you provided for us and the fellowship that we're going to enjoy here just in a few moments. In Christ's name, amen.